0: Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 16, with an emphasis on verses 11 through 14. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 are about the, if you're new to our church, it's about the foundations of the church. And the Apostle Paul, he begins with what it means to be a Christian. That's the first That's the first half of this book. And we've been saying that for the the first 3 to 14 verses, uh, you know, verses 3 to 14, it's really one long sentence. In fact, the entire chapter, chapter 1 of Ephesians, is really only about two or three sentences in the Greek. And Paul's trying to explain to us this amazing thing about what being a Christian is. What does it mean to be a Christian? And um, it's important to know this. Why? Because if you're a Christian... You need to know again, you need to challenge yourself over and over again what it means to be a Christian, what you actually believe. And if you're not a believer, you need to really know what you're rejecting, right? Because you hear a lot of things, you see a lot of things, but what are you really turning away from? So what do you believe? What are you turning away from? There are six things. We're going to go quickly, okay? Six things. Um, Truth gospel, hope, poise, redemption, and glory. Six things. I've got to use two hands, right? Truth, gospel, hope, poise, redemption, and glory. We're going to go through those very quickly. First, what do we believe? Truth. Verse 13, Paul says, you who are also included in christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation now becoming a christian what that means is it doesn't start by you doing something but rather by you hearing something that's what paul says what do you hear it's a word Meaning it's a message. Paul says it's the gospel, the word of truth, the message of truth. Now this is very important. Why? Because we live in a time where we believe that all truth claims are, are valid. Everything is relative. We live in a time when everyone believes it's okay to say, it's okay to say that I'm looking for truth, I'm searching for truth. But it's not okay to say, this is it. I found the truth. This is what it is. We're allergic to absolutes, we're allergic to anything that says that this is it, this is real reality. Now, we say, who are you to tell me that your worldview is better than all the other worldviews on earth? Who are you to tell me that your religion, what you believe, is better than what I believe, what other people believe? They're equally valid. Who are you to say that there's only one way to God? Who are you to say, you know, don't try to impose, don't try to impress me with your worldview as the only worldview, the only truth? Now, there's a problem with that, and here's why. Because if all worldviews are equally valid and and, and there's no, you can't view your way as the way, one way is absolute, then you can't say that, I mean, Essentially, if there are no absolutes, then there's no such thing as real justice. You see? If your view of justice is equally valid as my view of justice, if your view of justice is equally valid as everyone else's view of justice around the world, think about this, right? You can't say racism is wrong then. You can't say the Nazis were wrong. They had a view of justice, and it's equally valid as anyone else's. You can't say a serial killer's view of justice is right or wrong. You can't say that, right? Because on what basis are you making that kind of a claim? Who are you to impose your view of justice on someone else? In a sense, you need truth. You need one way, you need one truth to live life, to live life. Without it, there's no such thing as real morals. There's no such thing as real justice in the world. By the way, postmodern thinking, this view that all truth claims, all worldviews are are equally valid, it's got obvious flaws, very illogical, because if you think about it, if you object to all truth claims that say this is the way to view the world, and postmodernism is another way of just viewing the world, Right? Postmodernism says, if you don't believe what I believe, then you're not, you, know, you're, you should be kicked out, right? You should be rejected, right? If you don't believe that all truth claims are valid then you should be rejected, you should be kicked out, right? Then what are you doing? You're imposing you know, your worldview on someone else. In essence, the philosophy of postmodernism kind of upends itself, it kind of reverses itself and kind of turns on itself. There has to be a transcendent right There has to be a transcendent view of justice that validates our morals, that validates our laws. Otherwise, you have no right to say that racism or violence or oppression or rape or murder is wrong. John chapter 1, the author says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word became flesh. That word, that Greek word, word, is logos. And the word logos, it it's refers to the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks were obsessed with meaning. What is life about? What is real truth? What is real reality? They believed that there has to be a real truth. Even the ancients, pluralistic, Almost a postmodern thinking society. They believe that there has to be one logical way of viewing the world, and they were obsessed with finding it. And John says, What? There is a reality beneath the reality. There is true meaning. There is real truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. In other words, Christianity says this you want to find truth. Because there is one. You want objective reality? You want deeper meaning? He came. He came down. It's a person. It's real. There is such a thing. So real, you can access the person. So real, you can touch him, embrace him, and hold him. Now, what truth? Paul says, second point, that the word of truth is the gospel. What does that mean? The ancient times, uh, the word gospel... Meant, it's the word euangelion, it means announcement. It means proclamation. It meant news. It's the proclamation of an event that took place in history that changed the life of anyone that that news applied to, anyone that that announcement applied to, anyone who heard it. For example, when a king won a battle, when a king won a war that liberates people who were held, who were oppressed. A gospel to those people was proclaimed that the king has come and set you free. What's the good news? Other religions preach what? If you want to be saved, if you want to be accepted by God, you have to follow the rules. You have to follow the laws. You have to obey. You must do. That's not great news. That's not great news. Christianity does not say that. The gospel is good news. The gospel is great news of what? The king has come and made a way for us to be saved and won the war. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done in history to save his people. Tim Keller says very simply, that's why I love Tim Keller, very plainly, very succinctly, religion is good advice. You have to do it. The gospel is good news. You just hear it. You just take it in. You receive it. Religion tells you what you have to do to be saved. The gospel tells us what God has done to save us. Now we say, oh, but I get hung up on the laws. I get hung up on, I don't like this about the Bible. I don't like what this says about the Bible. I don't like that about the Bible, uh, what it says. You're looking at it all wrong. Because you have to ask yourself, let me ask you this is the gospel true? Is what Jesus did, what he claims, is it true? Did Jesus Christ really rise again from the dead? Because if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, if the gospel is not true, then why obey anything that the Bible says? Why obey anything that Jesus says? You can't look at the Bible and judge Christianity on what you like and the little things you don't like. You have to start with the news because it's all over the Bible. You have to start with the news. Jesus himself says the whole Bible is about him and what he's done. You have to start with the news. Is it true? Because if it's true, then the Bible has every right to tell you how to live. You have to look at Jesus. Look at his beauty. Look at his righteousness. Look at his kingliness. Look at his sacrifice. Is it true? Did he rise again from the dead? Hear the claims. Hear the truth claims. Trust his claims. Then it becomes good news. Because the king has come and the king has won. We take in the truth. The truth is the gospel. Number three, it gives us hope. Verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ were included in Christ when we heard the word of truth, which is the gospel, right? So we who were the first to hope in Christ. Verse 14, he says, we were marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit, a deposit that's guaranteeing our inheritance. Because of that deposit that guarantees our inheritance, and inheritance is something that happens in the future, right? We have hope. In the Greek, the word hope is not the way we say. When we say, man, I hope the Eagles win. I hope the Philadelphia Eagles win the Super Bowl. What we're saying is, I'm not sure what's going to happen. So that kind of hope is based on an uncertainty. But that's not this word hope in the Greek. We who were the first to hope in Jesus, in Christ. That word hope in the Greek is a life-changing certainty. You have come to the hope, right? It is a life-changing certainty that hasn't quite fulfilled itself until the end. That's why there is a hope. We're trusting in that. What does that mean? Everyone here, whether you know it or not, unless you actually stop and think about it, we live our lives based on our view of the future. Think about why you chose the college you chose. Think about why you chose the careers you chose. Think about why you're working so hard in the workplace to do what you're doing. Think about all the things that you're, that you're working right now for. Are you working just for the here and now? No, you're thinking about tomorrow. You should be thinking about tomorrow. You're thinking about tomorrow. You're thinking about your life tomorrow. You're thinking about, think about the relationships that you're building. You're thinking about tomorrow. Think about that special person that you're in a relationship with. You're thinking about tomorrow. The, the savings that you're making, what is it for? You're thinking about tomorrow. We all live our lives in view of the future. Our view of the future shapes how we live. It gives us hope. If that hope is uncertain, the more uncertain that hope is, your lives psychologically, philosophically, spiritually will degrade. Think about it. If your hope is certain, on the other hand, psychologically, your confidence, your boldness, how you behave, what you do, how you act right? Completely different. I had a friend in college. <laughs> he was an art major. Now, uh, art majors are not known to be, art majors are never happy, right? Because they're, they're taught to be smug. You have to have a, a certain view of the world, and the world is decaying. So art majors, their interpretation of society and the world, if you're, if you're a good artist, is usually pretty bad. They have a bad outlook, right? But my friend uh, in college was always bright always happy, right? And uh, after I said, man, you're always happy. It's like almost annoying. It's irritating. You are always happy. He comes back, you know, from an exam, right? I don't know what art exams look like, but he comes back from an art exam, right? I was uh, in the in technology and sciences and stuff like that, right? He comes back, and he suffered an exam. He didn't study hard, and generally, if you don't study hard, you're not going to do well, right? So he comes back, and, and uh, he, he, you know, Cs, Ds, pretty much all through college. And I asked him, why and how are you so happy? And you know what he said to me? He said, do you know why I chose art as my major? My parents told me before, about a week before I went to college, son, you are the third generation of children that came to this college all we need is for you to graduate if you graduate your graduation gift is an 88 million dollar inheritance to run help run the cable company in manhattan 88 million dollar share so i chose art <laughs> i said i just need to graduate right if you could choose jim you would have chosen jim right art and so it didn't matter if he did poorly as long as he passed, right? He was, that's the certainty of the hope. His parents told him, I want you to just let that shape you. On one hand, don't get into trouble, right? But on the other hand, just graduate. Get a degree from this institution and just graduate. It shaped how he lived his life. Always happy. Man, he, came, he would come back from an exam, and he would get like a C minus, which is actually barely, at our school, that's a passing grade, right? And, and we'd say, man, you, that must be tough for you. You know, you're like, you're like, you're like the C minus major, right? And, and he said, you guys want to go out to eat? It's my treat. Where do you get all this money, right? He said, man, at the end, he said, my parents gave me this inheritance. The Apostle Paul says, we have a deposit a deposit. What is a deposit? You check in your bank account and you see it, right? It's written out. You see the numbers. The Apostle Paul says, we have a deposit that guarantees our future, the Holy Spirit living in us. Guaranteed. We're going to get into that a little bit later, right? So we have truth. The truth is the good news of the gospel, what God has done, and that gives us a deposit that guarantees the certainty of our future, what God has given us. An installment that guarantees our future. Now, that gives us hope, a certainty in how we live, that shapes how we live. The fourth thing is that gives us poise. We're going to begin with verse 14 and kind of work our way backwards, right? It's going to help us to understand it a little bit better, all right? The Apostle Paul saying this. If you're a Christian, first, you are God's possession. We are heirs of an inheritance. Later on, in verse eighteen, he says, "We are God's inheritance." And the Greek word for inheritance—lots of Greek today, right? The Greek word for inheritance is—it's uh, a word that implies uh, the complete, total, whole sum of everything that you have, right? If you want to condense that in the English language, it's net worth. That's what you are, right? Here's what that, I'm going to kind of illustrate that for you. Imagine uh, you're in a home, you go to sleep, and you wake up to smoke, you smell smoke. And you open up the door and there's a blazing fire. And uh, what do you do? In that instant, the alarm is ringing. Kids are screaming in the other room. Coughing. You're coughing. The smoke is pouring into your room. What do you do? Your first thought is the kids, right? You're going to take a blanket. You're going to wet it. You're going to wrap it around. I'm not. By the way, this is not a prescription. I don't know how to fight through a fire. I don't know what you're supposed to do. You know, most of the time you're supposed to, I was told at least, you have to just fight for survival. Get out of there right? You're thinking the kids. I'm assuming that's the natural instinct. You're going to fight through that smoke, at least if you can. You're going to fight through the fire if you can. You're going to grab these kids, and you're going to do something, break a window, throw a chair through the window, right? You're going to try to, you're going to get them out there. You're going to get yourself out there. Why? What are you thinking? You've got to climb out. you got to escape. You're going to risk your life to do that. You can, you can lose your laptop. You can lose the grand piano. You can lose a 60-inch TV. But these kids are the sum of everything I've got. Now, for those of you who have children, you're going to grab, you're going to your wallet, your keys, right? You're going to grab your MacBook Pro, right? That's pretty much the sum of your net worth, right? Everything you need. That's it. You're going to jump out, right? And then basically, that's going to be enough for you because then you can access the computer. You know, you can get online and everything's intact, right? That's how you're going to think. Now. We have a we have a God. The Bible says that owns the entire universe. I was going to get real scientific with you, but I'm not. Okay, galaxies upon galaxies. Uh, you know how vast our galaxy is. Let alone there's galaxies upon galaxies. God who owns the universe. And the Bible says creation is going to go up in flames. Everything's going to go up in flames. And he has chosen to rescue his people. You. I'm going to gather them up. That's what he says. When he looks at you, he says this. He has chosen it. God does not need anything, God does not lack anything. He has chosen to wrap himself up so that you are the sum of his net worth. He sees you as more valuable than anything, more than everything else put together. He has chosen to do that, wrap himself up in his embrace of you. Now, why am I telling you this? We live in a society that uh, is all about increasing our very low esteem. Uh, in our society today, very low self-esteem, lots of people with low self-images, poor self-images. The media has a lot to do with that. We can blame a lot of things, but it's because in our hearts, we have lost the security of the Father. We have lost the love of the Father. We have lost the validation and approval of the Father ever since the Garden of Eden, right? And so because of that, we're constantly looking for validation. In a way, we were built that way, and we live in a society that's all about building up your self-esteem, building up your self-image. So either A, you're going you're gonna to buy into, you got to lose weight, you got to wear nice clothes, you got to work hard, build that resume, you got to be beautiful. Or you're going to say on the other side, I'm going to just stop caring about what other people think. It doesn't matter what other people think. All that matters is what you think. Now, on one hand, you know, that whole be beautiful, build yourself up, build your self-esteem thing, who has the final say? Who's going to tell you you arrived? Where's the limitation to that? We're all looking for someone who's going to say, yes, you really are beautiful. You truly are wonderful. You're a treasure. And we're going to work and we're going to groan and we're going to labor. And if you succeed, you're going to be proud and arrogant because you did it. And if you fail, you're going to let despair come in and you're just going to let yourself go and you're going to be jealous. That's what's going to happen. On the other hand, that it doesn't matter what other people think, it only matters what you think, really? Is that why you're working so hard in the office? Really? For yourself, really, not for your boss, not for your your colleagues, not for your reputation? By the way, that phrase, you know it doesn't really matter what other people think, no true author who's serious about himself, no true businessman or entrepreneur who's truly serious about himself, no true singer or artist or parent or child or anyone in their career would really believe that because we know we all need validation from somebody who we believe has arrived, right, who says, yes, you're good. You're okay. We're built that way in a sense. We all need that. We all need somebody. That's why we're so desperate for people's love and affection and intimacy. Why? Because we want so much for somebody to say, you are special. And that's the point, Paul's saying that God himself, the creator of the universe, galaxies upon galaxies, looks at you and says what? Of all the things I've ever created, you are my treasure. I've chosen you to be the sum of my worth. You are that special. When God sees you, he melts. He feels wealthy when he thinks about his church. We look at the church and say, oh, it's messed up and it's corruption and there's all this stuff going on in the churches today. When God sees us weak and broken, you know, if you're a parent, you would understand your children, if you don't believe it, you have problems. Your children have tremendous limitations, all of them. But does that make you love your children less? No. If anything, it makes you love them more. You're drawn to them because of their weakness. You love them even if they're weak. With every success, you dote on them. And every weakness, when they are sick and in bed, you want to dote on them. You just, you just wish your love could overpower everything that they're going through so they will be okay, right? That's how it is, right, parents? When God sees you, it's the way you look at your child. He dotes on you. You look in the mirror and what happens is there's self-loathing, self-hatred. But a good father will look at his child, whether he's messed up, screwed up horribly, whether he's succeeded, and he's going to say, that's my kid. And I will do everything I can in my power to protect him. He will look at every success, every discovery. He will look at every loss, every failure. Every failure, he will hurt for you and grieve for you. Every injustice, he will hurt for you and grieve for you. Friends, that should be a comfort for you. Every success, every you could have sinned, you could have been broken, you could have broken other people, and yet he will look at you as his child, say, "Yeah, you screwed up," but he will go to great lengths to rescue you from that, greatest lengths. The way a father looks at his child. When he looks at you, he says, you know, I can lose everything else. I can let everything else go, but if I have you, I am rich. Now, if a worldly father feels that way about his child, how much more would an infinitely selfless, infinitely loving, infinitely gracious God gush over his children? There is the validation. There's the approval. There's the embrace. There's the love that you've been looking for all your life. You're just putting it in the wrong things. There's the validation that you need. There's that someone outside of yourself, the only one who has the right to validate you, the ultimate judge, the ultimate king, the ultimate ruler, the creator, can say, yes, I can validate you to the degree that you trust, that you are embraced, by the love of the Father, it will reshape your self-image to the degree that you trust that. If you don't trust it much, your self-image will be poor. If you trust it much, you are the inheritance and you have a guaranteed inheritance and you will know and you will let that shape your self-image. You will gi- it will give you poise in the midst of the greatest criticisms. It will give you poise amidst the greatest failures It will give you poise and strength amidst the greatest loss. If you don't feel that way, if you don't experience that, if you don't trust that, even if you are a Christian, you will be like everyone else. At home, at work, in your relationships, you will always be fighting. You will always be crying and, and, and complaining, and you will be desperate for the love and the validation of other people. And it's going to come at great cost to them, and it's going to come at great cost to yourself. And you will always be anxious. You will always be angry. You will always be jealous. You will always be insecure. You will be lost. And you will break the Father's heart. You will break the Father's heart. The fifth thing, so, so I know that's a lot of points. So we talked about truth, that truth is the gospel, what God has done, not what you must do, right? That should give you hope because the Holy Spirit has entered in. That gives you a guaranteed inheritance that you can live with certainty on. It should shape the way you live your life. you are a child of the king, you will live kingly. And that will give you poise and strength and confidence in the midst of hardship and failure and suffering and loss. Right? The fifth thing it gives us is redemption. We've been talking about redemption the last several weeks. This is interesting because uh, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a complicated concept, right? Because in verse 14, he says, Until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So he says, You are God's possession. And he says, until your redemption. But then in verse 7, we learned a few weeks ago, you're already redeemed in Christ, right? Verse verse 14, there's a future redemption. Verse 7, it says, you are already redeemed. You are already forgiven. Verse 7 says, there's a past redemption. So which one is it? What does that mean? On one hand, Paul's saying, you're already redeemed, you are saved you are free. Past tense. You are given every spiritual blessing. Past tense. It's already happened. The penalty of sin has been paid. The debt of sin has been paid. You are free from captivity. The jail cells are open and it is unlocked. The door is open and you are free. You are redeemed. God has purchased you, redeemed you at a cost. But what about the power of sin? Why is it that I still have sin in my life? Why am I still so, like, steeped in my indwelling sin? There's still indwelling sin in our lives. You're still kind of not free in that sense. Housekeeper, housekeeper says, you know, rings the doorbell. I'm coming in, right? You say, yes, because I've been working to clean, and it's not cleaning. It's not working. But this housekeeper knows every nook and cranny of my house. And she's going to come in and wipe everything clean. And so she comes in. Is your house automatically clean? On one hand, it's clean, guaranteed, done, right? On the other hand, now she's going to go into every room and start cleaning up, right? And bad stuff starts to pop out, right? I'm going to give you another um, illustration. Uh, In the Middle East, you have a, a tyrant... About a decade and a half ago, you had had a tyrant, a dictator, that was overthrown. People lived in fear for decades. Uh, But this tyrant was caught, and he was executed, and the public saw it, right? Um, Whether or not that was intended, the public saw. And because they saw this, they knew, they know now they're free, right? But is everything okay over there in the Middle East? No, Not in that country. There are remnants of that old regime wreaking havoc in the city, wreaking havoc in the streets. The buildings are still a mess. Everything's still crumbling down. That old regime is still wreaking havoc, but the dictator is dead. The tyrant is gone. I have a friend, Captain in the Marines uh, at the time, uh, fought in Fallujah, which is actually one of the fiercest areas of battle during that period. And he was talking with the locals uh, where the fighting was the fiercest. And, you know, the city is a mess. Buildings just crumbled down. Very lively city. Just now torn down. Streets broken up. Tanks rolling in. Bombed. The whole place is just bombed up, right? And uh, he's talking with the locals. And he's thinking, "I I wonder if they're resentful because we're here. Right? Because their buildings, their homes, everything's torn up. They said to him, no. If you look at the streets, if you look at the buildings, they're a mess. We understand that but they're going to be rebuilt over time. They're going to be rebuilt. The point is, this is the mark that the tyrant is dead. Paul's saying that sin, the presence of sin, is still wreaking havoc in our lives, wreaking havoc in our souls. But it's not a lasting power because the tyrant the dictator has been ousted. One day, this house that's falling apart will be completely restored, completely rebuilt, made new. One day, the power and the penalty of sin, the presence of sin, will be gone forever. You won't be able to sin. Your body will never be able to fail you. It can't fail you. Can you imagine that? Romans chapter 8, the author says, it was actually Paul, he says this, for creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's the power of sin. That's the presence of sin right now. We're, we're, in, we're in bondage to our decay. That's why our bodies will die. It has to die. It's the last remnant of the old regime, right? Creation itself will be liberated from this someday. That's the power of sin, the presence of sin. And it's going to bring you to the glorious freedom of the children of God, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, there's the word again, in this certainty, this guaranteed certainty, we are saved. One day God will return. And He is holy, 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 holy. Perfect, so perfect, so powerful. When he arrives it's going to cleanse the entire... It's almost like we're living in black and white right now. We think it's color, but we're living in black and white. We will discover new colors. He's going to come and cleanse the world and undo every injustice, every oppression, every suffering, every sin, every wrong. It's almost like it will be turned upside down. Anything you've ever lost in your brokenness, in sin will be found again. Death and decay and disease and loss, sin, all gone, wiped away with the old regime. The house will be rebuilt, perfected. Our bodies will reach your fullest potential. That's what's coming. In the Chronicles of Narnia... These children, they walk through this magical wardrobe, and they end up in this magical, fantastical world. If you have never read a book, you should read the book. It's an amazing book. Uh, The movie's kind of okay, but these kids kind of walk through, and uh, Mr. Tumnus, uh, he meets them. He greets these children who walk through this wardrobe. They see this new world, but the world is frozen. There's snow everywhere. Everything's frozen. And Mr. Tumnus kind of explains that this witch has cursed the entire world, this fantastical world, and everything is frozen. But then he looks and he says, he says, look, it's starting to melt. It's thawing out. He points to a thawing. The ice is melting. The spell's broken because the king is coming. The power's already broken. The melting is already happening. There's still brokenness. It's still frozen. It still feels cold. But he's coming. The curse is already broken. You're already redeemed, not yet fully, completely restored. How do you apply this? On one hand, you can let go of the things of the world, you don't cling too tightly to the things of the world. No matter how great your life is, no matter how bad things are, you can walk away. It's temporary. Fleeting, friends. I'm. I'm. I just turned 44. Right? Am I allowed to say that? You know how old I am. I just turned 44. Some of you, that's like old, right? Um, it kind of is, right? Um, but uh, at 44, uh, when I was 22, I was like, the world. I have the world ahead of me. Your 20s, the world's ahead of you. When you're in your 40s, you realize you've lived probably over half your life. You're now at the peak, the pinnacle, and you're kind of heading into the twilight of your life. And, you, uh, and you, you know, this is not to, to make anyone despair. You look at that and you say, wow, my only point is this. Life goes fast. It gets faster and faster. It just speeds up. It doesn't slow down. It speeds up. So when my mother these days says, a year flies by fast, I can only imagine how much faster it is for her a year going by, right? You can walk away. It's temporary. It's temporary, and no matter how good it is, it's still cursed. It's still broken. No matter how bad it is, it's because it's cursed. It's broken. Don't cling to what you've got. You can let go. The gospel tells us you can let go. If you're clinging on to something, if you're craving something here, right? If you're losing poise, that's how you know. If you're losing poise, every single time something goes wrong, right? Um, If that's what's making up your confidence, if I lose this thing, then life, at least as I know it, will feel like it's over. You are still under the curse, right? Remember Indiana Jones? Some of you guys remember Indiana Jones, the the, the movie, right, the movies, right? Uh, the third installment, right? With my favorite one, The Last Crusade. If Elsa, this woman, right? Elsa, she's uh, she wants the Holy Grail. She's found it. She wants the Holy Grail. She wants the cup. And she's reaching for that cup, but she's got one hand on, on a ledge and someone's holding on to her. I think Indiana, jo- Indiana Jones is holding on to her. She says, if I can just get that cup because that's what I came for. That's the only thing that's going to give me meaning and purpose. She doesn't say that in the movie, but she's just like, I need to reach it. I need to reach it. And what happens is what? Because she doesn't cling tightly to salvation, right? And that's not what she cared about. What she wanted was that one temporal worldly thing. She loses her grip. She falls through that pit right in the darkness forever she's lost you can let go you can let go of the things of the world on the other hand the final redemption is coming that means you can endure suffering because that's going to come to an end there's a certainty that all this is going to come to an end everything that's ever been wrong with everything you hate about yourself will be turned on its head and you will it will become the best part of who you are isn't that amazing? Every loss you've ever experienced will be turned up on its head. And when it's refound, it will become a part of the greater glory that you're living. Lastly, he talks about glory. Right? So we talked about truth. The truth is the word of the gospel. Right? The gospel gives us a lasting hope, an eternal hope, A certainty, right? That certainty gives us poise, right? The poise points us, we can have poise as we reflect and look to our final redemption in Christ, the redemption of our bodies, everything that's ever gone wrong. And he says, you will have glory, right? Glory, that's the sixth one, right? Verse 14, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. The word deposit in the Greek is first installment. What's Paul saying? Jesus' return is going to cleanse, it's going to wipe away everything that's bad, cleanse everything, restore everything. That's not just a promise. Paul's saying it's not just a promise. You already have it in the form of a deposit, an installment. It's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, There is a deposit there that you experience and you know, that you have in you. It's God's beauty. It's God's glory in your life. It's so glorious. Right now, it's already starting to change you. Jesus says, I am making everything new. Right now, the Holy Spirit enters in, cleansing now, shaping now, rebuilding you now. There are things that you never thought were wrong that for some reason today, you're saying, why do I feel this way about this today? i got to cut this out of my life. You think that's your goodness that's telling you that? The Bible says you don't have any goodness in you. You think it's your will and your ability and your insight that's telling you that? No. Something has happened in your life. The Holy Spirit has come in. And the Holy Spirit has come in and is shaping you and cleaning. There are brokenness. Some of you are experiencing new brokennesses in your life. The power of that brokenness, things that have been repressed, put away. Now, as you're getting older, you're starting to relive it. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's just certain feelings of anger. And you say, man, you beat yourself up over that. You know what? God is working and active in your life to uncover things that are broken so that you can be healed. That's happening today. That is not an absence of God in your life. That is the presence of God in your life. It is a deposit that is guaranteeing the future glory. If you can sit there and say, this brokenness today, every brokenness in your life, make a list, run them down. Every brokenness in your life will one day be upended, 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 and it's going to become a greater glory in your life tomorrow in the ultimate day. You have that as a deposit with the Holy Spirit working in your life and starting to pick at it now. It's almost like you've got scales on and God is ripping the scales off piece by piece. That comes from a book. Tearing you up until you become not the dragon that you look in the mirror and you see, but the child that you are in Christ. God comes in your life and the whole world changes. God moves into your life. You see, a lot of us, we ask God to come in. We expect small changes. We want improvement. We want supplement in our lives. If I just have this one little thing, I think I'll be better, Lord. Can you give it to me? That's what we pray about. 99% of the prayers in the world are about things that they want, that they think will improve them. But God, what God does is greater, more wonderful than you could ever fathom. What he's doing right now, he's making you into something and someone greater than you ever could have fathomed in your own life. More than just an inspiration, he's making you new. More than making you nice, he's making you new. We're all broken. We say, oh, I'm trying to change. Uh, I, I can't change. So we beat ourselves up and we, we fall into just self-loathing, self-hatred. Look at Peter, the apostle Peter. You know the story about the apostle Peter? Peter was one of Jesus's disciples, one of his closest friends. All his life, living like he had something to prove, made him very arrogant, even arrogant on top of his, the other disciples. And then, what does he do? He betrays Jesus. What happens? Does he give up on himself? There's tremendous guilt. There's probably fear. When he hears the word of truth, the gospel that he is forgiven, it redeemed him. Do you know that only two chapters after that passage in John twenty twenty-one, when Jesus forgives him, about two chapters later in Acts, Peter's now out there in the streets proclaiming the gospel again. Just two chapters makes a huge difference. You see that? What chapters is God working right now in your life to redeem you and shape you in the midst of your brokenness? Right? In the midst of the failure and the flaws. Some of us, we sit there and, you got to remember this. This is not a power, another power. This is power. This is not just a glory. This is glory with a capital G. This is not just a good thing, right? A beautiful thing. This is beauty. A lot of us say, but uh, being a Christian, I'm afraid of the things that I might have to give up to be a Christian. Look, unless you give up, the lesser kings in your life, you will never meet the greater king. Unless you surrender and give this king supreme control over everything in your life, you will never see how supreme and powerful and how faithful and loving and forgiving and wise and good he is. You see that? How do you get this, right? How do you get this? You have to be captivated You have to be captivated by the truth, by the news, by the hope, the hope that gives you poise, the poise that points to redemption. You have to be captivated by this. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to give up these things in my life. You have to look to Jesus Christ who came down and sacrificed for you. You're afraid to give up Those things in your life, the glory in your life, Jesus gave up the heavenly glory for me. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger for me. He was willing to let go of everything for me. Why? Because we, God's people, are his treasure, his net worth. He chose to. And he didn't come, you know, we say, we're going to fight through the fire at the risk of our lives. Jesus Christ fought through the fire or the wrath of God at the cost of his life. You know, my favorite book, Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy, he makes 10000 a year, right? And uh, he's the wealthiest person uh, in the book. He sacrifices his reputation. He sacrifices his status for poor Elizabeth Bennett. And what does he say after everything kind of unravels at the end of the story? Yes, now I want You owe me. I want you to kneel before me. Does that what he says? That would be a terrible book if that's what he says, right? He says, no, surely you must know. I did it all for you. I did it all for you. That's what he says. Mark chapter 1. Jesus Christ is getting baptized. The Bible says that heaven opened up. The Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove. And God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. What's he doing? He's looking at his son the way a father looks at his children and he's doting on him. He says, look at my son. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? He is perfect. He is holy. He is the exact representation of me. You cannot get more beautiful than my son. Look at my son. He is pleased. How do you know that God treasures you. What is the evidence that God treasures you? On the cross, Jesus Christ emptied himself of all beauty, emptied himself of all glory. This father who is doting on his son sends his son to sacrifice his life for his treasure. We always say, I die for that. Jesus Christ says, Yes. I did die for you. You would only be willing to die for the things that matter to you most. Jesus Christ says, I not only am willing to die, I died for you. That's how you know. On the cross, Jesus cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost meaning. I'm giving myself up to die. I'm lost. Now I have no hope. I have no redemption. I'm giving up my glory. I'm cursed. I'm rejected. I'm burning up. In the fiery wrath of God, I've been forsaken. But do you know, even as life was falling apart, he was singing about it. He was praying to God. My God, my God. He was praying to God. Why? Why did he do it? Hebrews 12 says, he did it for the joy set before him, for the treasure. What is the treasure? It was you his people. is me. You know, you may doubt at times that God loves you, but you would never doubt that God loves his own son. Jack Miller used to say that. You doubt often that God loves you. You forget that God loves you, but you would never doubt that God loves his own son. And what did he do with his son? He sent his son to die. For who? For you. That's how you know that God loves you. That's how you know this is true. He gave up everything for you. Even death couldn't hold him down. That's why it's good news. You can have glory because Jesus gave it up for you. You can be filled with glory because he emptied himself for you. Jesus was marked as God's forsaken so that you would be marked as his possession. You have to take that truth if you believe. You have to root it in your life and let it do amazing things. Let it shape your life into redemption until we are finally, until the redemption, the full redemption comes. Let's pray together.